Welcome to an episode of Inside the Handle, where we interview personalities in the NFT community and get to peek inside their handle and learn about them outside of the NFT space. We'll learn about their careers, families, hobbies, and have some fun. So sit back and enjoy. In this episode, we're going to talk with Dave P., the creator and co-host of the Priority Q podcast. We're going to talk about his career in the grocery industry, his love of internet technology, bearded cats, billiard games in Vegas, and much, much more. Hang tight, because this is going to be a great episode. All right, here we are with Dave P himself. Super excited for this chat. I've I've got the opportunity to know Dave a little bit myself uh, through Twitter and DMs, and uh, I think he's a class act. I'm really excited that the rest of the community can get to know you a little bit, Dave. How you doing today? I'm doing awesome, man. It's a nice Sunday afternoon, just hanging out, not thinking about work just yet. Excited, excited yeah. to be on the show, man. Appreciate you having me on. Yeah, absolutely. I, I I apologize it took so long to get you on, man. I'm 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 excited for this for sure. No, no need to so apologize, you, dude. So you're not thinking about work yet. What what time on a Sunday do you begin to think about what rolls on a Monday morning? You know, truthfully, is I said that, but I'm pretty good at disconnecting from my job, so I won't really think about it till the morning when I wake up. And, and so Sundays are usually pretty clear mind for me. Nice, enjoyable day, nice. get up, work out, um, play around at the computer. My wife and I might go to brunch or lunch or something like that. And uh, But I, I try to keep it relaxing. If football's on, of course, I'll, I'll watch football. But Yeah, absolutely. Now, um, <clears throat> I know that you've done some DFS stuff. Are you DFS in the playoffs too? When the, when the number of games gets limited, do you get involved with any of that stuff? My DFS play has gone down dramatically as I've kind of focused harder on this space. I just don't have time enough to study it. Uh, I don't mind drafting a lineup just for the sheer thrill of gambling and finding out after like the second play of the first game that I'm out. But (laughs) uh, I haven't played I haven't played much DFS at all as of late. I'll I'll definitely for today and, and the future rounds probably throw a lineup or two in just for fun. All right. Very cool. Very cool. Uh, so before we get into a little bit about you and, and get the opportunity to peek you know, inside the handle, talk to me a little bit about sort of where you are in the NFT space. I know you are really interested in some flow projects or some projects that are, that are on flow. Um, you've been involved in a number of projects over time. Sort of where are you in your DFS world right now? Or not DFS, I'm sorry, your NFT world right now. So uh, about a week ago, I anniversaried one year in the space. So I started on January 15th of 2021. I bought my first pack of NBA Top Shot. And after about a month and a half, I, I found my way into OpenSea and, and everything. So fast forward to now, I, I did a lot of experimenting last year, definitely a lot of learnings, a lot of hard learnings, You know, going from flipping projects, investing projects. I bought a lot of good projects. I sold them very early. You know, there is there is always the joke within the group of of paper handed Dave, which I play along with well because it's true. <laughs> I wasn't gonna bring that. Oh, up. <laughs> happy to man. No, no worries. It's all. I look at everything that's happened over the last last year and and 
some people did really well and understood how the markets worked and how to play in the space, whether experienced or not in NFTs. I was not one of them. I, I, I learned by failure over and over again until I just start to understand what I'm doing more. So I just played a lot with Ethereum and now this year I've moved into Flow and I, I focus most of my attention on Flow. I'm just a big fan of Dapper Labs and the team that works for Dapper and what they're doing with this space and what their vision is. You know, Top Shot being at the forefront of that. But finally, we're starting to see projects being built on Flow, which I think are fun and exciting. You know, some of them, Baller's NFT, Flovatar, and Hoodlum's NFT are probably my three favorites. And you look at like Flovatar, they started building that in Q1 of 2021. So you've seen a lot of projects coming out that have been being built for months. They're not three kids in a basement who just came up with this project, but you know, some art from, in a Russian basement. Yeah. Hired somebody on five Fiverr, pumped out some stuff, gave you this roadmap and they're moving. And not to like say that there's definitely, there's a lot of really legitimate projects in Ethereum, but I find Ethereum frustrating. I, I keep my eye on it. I, I'm paying attention to it. I certainly know that there's projects that have done really well that I haven't participated in, but I just love flow. I love Dapper and I'm, paying attention really as much of my time to what's going on in the flow blockchain. Now you're, you're interested in NFTs, but you're also interested in the, the crypto piece of flow, right? Like that's another piece of it that you're really interested in. Were you as interested in like Bitcoin and Ethereum um, in, in the crypto coin sense did you invest in that at an early point or did you jump into top shot without having that background i initially started by my so my crypto story actually goes back to 2017 when i was just completely absorbed by dfs um but i actually bought litecoin <laughs> it was like 48 dollars or something roughly i think but bitcoin at the time was was floating around seven grand it just had this huge pump so that's what caught my eye I didn't understand anything I was doing. I just went on Coinbase and I bought some Litecoin and I ended up buying, I ended up getting up to, I don't know, 55 Litecoins or something like that. And I hung around for a week, maybe two weeks. And it, it didn't really go anywhere. I think it went up to like $55. It, the, the, the values escaped me at this point, but I decided well, this is boring. So I sold out of it. And a week later was this massive, massive, pump in crypto and litecoin went up to like 330 dollars oh no <laughs> and i went well shit uh <laughs> so i i didn't get back into it i actually remember crypto kitties when that launched and that came across my timeline on twitter and i looked at it and i said well that looks interesting but i have no idea what it is it looks silly i'm sure nobody's gonna do this i'm just gonna keep going with dfs whoops <laughs> Yeah, right? Oh, man. If we had only knew. Yeah. I, I don't know knew. if I was ready at, at my point. Like, NFTs make so much sense to me. Uh, I'm not a cluttery person. I don't collect things physically. But when I was younger and I had, and this is a bit of a tangent, but when I got my computer and connected to the internet, I loved collecting MP3s and uh, videos and games and I had emulators. And I so I loved storing those and organizing them on my in folders. And that was my digital collection. And so, like, that's why NFTs make so much sense to me. Um, now, you, when you were younger, you were 
interested in sort of like building computers, right? And like taking things apart and understanding not just how they worked from a user interaction, but like the insides of it. Yeah, I actually went to I, one of the first things I took in school was programming and computer hardware was just learning how to build a desktop and what the components were. And so that was fun for a little bit, but I quickly, after a, a couple failed years in college, uh, quickly learned that co- programming was not for me. I just, it's too tedious. And it, the internet was what was more fascinating to me. And I really, in my 20s, started to study the internet and how people were making money on the internet and, and creating content and doing it. Like back then, it's like, you know, we're talking 90s or no. We're talking early 2000s. I <laughs> don't want to date myself too much. <laughs> Jesus. 90s was like AOL and, and whatnot. Um, but people yeah, were blogging yeah. and creating content and everything. So I became deeply fascinated with that almost almost 20 years ago. Do you think – so do you, do you look back and see that as sort of a natural progression where you understood a little bit about computers and then programming and then internet and sort of that was – for you at least, maybe a natural progression to get you to where you are? And do you think that that has helped to support your understanding of NFTs and the NFT space in a way that maybe somebody who doesn't have that background might not quite understand? I definitely do. When I was young, I I mean, I grew up with a computer. I had a computer from when I was a kid and I used to play games on it. And, you know, what... Okay, so what what games? Because I had a computer... In, in, I'm going to date myself. I had an Apple IIe, which was the first like home computer that uh, that I remember anybody in my neighborhood having. Uh, what games were you playing back on your on your earliest computer? Do you remember? One of the first games, I don't remember a lot of them. I do remember some really basic ones. We had regular video game consoles and everything too, so I love video games. But I remember uh, Where in Time Was Carmen Sandiego was a game that I was really yes! into. yes. <laughs> So you had to get the encyclopedia and find whatever the date was, and then you would move on to the next thing, and you were under a timer. So that one was... That's where I learned what spelunking means. Because like, <laughs> she was chasing after somebody that went spelunking. <laughs> <laughs> I think Manhunter might have... Uh, it's something like that. It was this really... It, yeah, it was a PC game. Oh, geez, you want to talk about dating. So that came out in 1988. Oh, and that wow. was another similar follow the clues and it would lead you different places because you were you were hunting somebody. And I was really addicted to that game. And so those were kind of my two. Those were my jams. Those are the two games that I played on PC. Now, mind you, again, I had video game consoles, Nintendo and the sure. Super Nintendo and everything. So I, I got right, into those right. a lot, too. Um, OK, so I'm sorry to interrupt you there, but I, I had to know because I can remember I played a football game. So back on the Apple IIe, there was no like real graphics, right? Like the Oregon Trail was a game that I, I, when I was really young that I remember playing. But there was a football game where like you would push, I don't know, like F2 and that would be a run play. And it was uh, you'd push, you know, F8 and that was a pass. And there were no graphics. It would just type out for you, you know, your team ran the ball to the left side and you gained two yards. <laughs> I remember games game. like that too. It was just all, it was just words. There was, <laughs> there was no yeah. actual graphics. <laughs> I do remember games like that. I couldn't name one off the top of my head, but you know, Oh, I mean, so that was a tangent, but yeah, that that's was, right. we like those. There's going to be plenty. I promise. One thing I can do is tangents, 
that was definitely a starting point for me with game with, with computers. Uh, you know, so eventually when I got into high school was when AOL came out. And AOL was like this whole new world and, and I jumped in and then you, you move through AOL Instant Messenger and everything. And really when the web took off was probably five years later or something when I was in my early 20s. And that's when I became deeply fascinated with it. So, yeah, I've always been involved in computers. I've done like website development. I've created content years and years ago. I've done a lot of things and it's actually I'm very comfortable on computers with a phone and so, yeah, I think that that certainly, I, I learned this at work a lot too with different generations that I work with. I'm, I'm often gone to for, you know, Dave, how do you do this? Or how do you manage this? Or how do you handle this in an efficient way? Because I'm really comfortable with computers. And I think that translates definitely. I Like NFT adoption, as soon as I understood what blockchain was, just made perfect sense to me. And it was easy. I think for, for a lot of people, it takes a lot longer to get there. And I think that the people that came in, you know, last year to Top Shot and in the NFT space in February, March, were those folks where it was easier for them to just pick up on and understand and feel comfortable with. Sure, and I think in some ways, I know we we talk about this from time to time, but I think what Dapper Labs is doing and the Dapper Wallet is making that transition for people even easier. People want to use a credit card, man. They just want a credit card. We live in a world of convenience where you have this smartphone that makes everything easier so you can do more. People don't want to get caught up in buying Ethereum and transferring it and you know forget some of the other things like Polygon and Matic and bridging and, right. and all this other shit. Like They're going to gravitate. The normies are going to gravitate to what's easy. Of course. And everything that we do, right? I mean, like we so many people shop at Amazon because it's a one-stop shop, right? So many people, and it can get delivered to your door. They use, uh, I don't know, what is it, Chewy uh, for like pet food and things because you can look at it, you go online, you can get all the treats and the food. You don't have to leave your house. Convenience is a king right now. Absolutely. For sure. Give me a few clicks and, and give me what I want. I don't want, I don't care about the process. And I, so right. I, like, I think that's what Coinbase is going to bring to the table next year or this year, I should say, with their with their platform and and what others are going to do, the ones that do the best. And I think just Dapper is just going to be at the forefront. I think Dapper is going to lead yeah. that way of onboarding people. And eventually when Dapper Wallet is integrated across all their flow projects is really when flow booms. Yeah, I, I agree wholeheartedly. All right. So let's get behind the handle a little bit. Let's talk a little bit about you, what you do. Uh, your career, your career path, some of the things you've done in the past, hobbies, all kinds of stuff I want to get into. Um, but you mentioned uh, your day job and you mentioned sort of what you do a little bit in terms of taking on other people's technological problems. Uh, can you talk to me a little bit about what you're doing? I mean, I know you're dealing with data and you're analyzing things, but what what's your typical day like uh, as you're heading into the office? So I'm a, I work for a supermarket in, uh, company. And I work in the sales division. I am a senior category manager. So uh, the short answer is I manage a team of people who are in charge of what you see on the shelf and in their sales flyer. You know, that's, that's the high, high level look at what I do. You're getting a little bit more granular. You know, we deal with manufacturers, supply chain, negotiation tactics, uh, promotional strategies. The whole, everything that you see when you go shopping at a supermarket from price point uh, regular every day to to assortment on the shelf, 
to the sales promotions that are driving you to go there maybe um, to the actual customer experience. We kind of, we, we do all that. And so, you know, as a senior, a lot of my job is mentoring people underneath me and guiding them and helping them. And also, you know, managing some of the the more challenging aspects of the desks and, you know, always streamlining, always trying to streamline, always to try to create efficiencies and what can be a very inefficient industry because supply chain is a major challenge uh, beyond what I think a lot of people understand right now. And, and, you know, the food industry has changed dramatically with COVID. So a, a day for me is I tip my typical schedule is a Monday through Friday. I do go into a corporate office. Uh, I do work from home at least once a week on occasion because my just job my job is pretty much 100% computer based. Virtual meetings I'll have regularly phone call meetings, uh, but a lot of it is you know coming in studying the recent trends, looking ahead. We'll we'll work up to three four months out. Uh, sometimes actually is all the way up to six months out of trying to forecast what's going to happen and planning ahead. So there's a little bit of working in the now and working in the future. And a lot of it is, you know, working with Excel, email, again, virtual meetings, and then, you know, whatever data systems that we have that we work with and just uh, studying sales, studying trends, studying anything and everything that that is related to it. And, and man, supermarket industry is so much more complex than Anybody who doesn't work in it probably would ever realize, but yeah, that's, that's my day to day. And then it, it can also stretch, you know, email sometimes comes into play on weekends. It all depends what's going on because our business doesn't turn off. It's 24 seven. Sure. So do you, are there, is there like other teams that work on weekends to keep things moving or is it typically such that like what you do in analyzing the trends and trying to forecast, you know, help negotiating and purchasing the weekends typically there's not a lot of action weekends are typically not a lot of action you know what okay. would come to me in the weekends during the weekends would be things going on on the operations side which would be in the stores people work in the stores the stores are open seven days a week you know mm-hmm. on my perspective i deal with a lot of brokers you know, brokerages and or sales representatives for companies they're all off on the weekends and holidays too so you know, it, anything that comes up during the weekend might be an issue that I would help a store resolve or something of that nature. But mostly my job operates Monday through Friday during standard business hours. Now, the the analyzing that you do, the data that you dive into, are you providing that to another team to do the actual negotiating for, for the purchasing to fill the shelves? Or do you participate in that negotiation process too? It could depend. It could depend on the level. So for a category manager under me that is managing their categories, they're going to be primarily responsible for that, all of that. You know, they're going to negotiate promotions and promotional pricing. What I look at will be data of, you know, whether it's profitability or sales volume, are we hitting our, our marks? Are we hitting our budgets or targets? If we're not, let's dive into this a little bit. Let's see what's going on. What might we be missing, uh, which could be a myriad of things. And, you know, a lot of our job is being given data and then how do we interpret that data? And then what do we do with it as more than kind of creating it? Okay, interesting. So I have to imagine then that the pandemic and, you know, people stocking paper products and, you know, meat being hard to find, like that must have just thrown you and your team for a loop because, 
from an industry, I don't know, have you ever, you've, you've been working with this company for a while, have you ever seen anything like this no. coming out of almost nowhere? Nobody has. It's uh, It has been a dramatic shift in how people consume food and where they consume food. And it has, it. my job these past two years and everybody else is involved in this industry, every level, manufacturers, brokers, uh, supply chain, trucking, everything is changed and I don't think we'll ever go back. Yeah, it's wild. I mean, even even just the notion of the number of people in a community, right, that would eat out during the week and during the pandemic, that stops. They're still eating, right? So now they're buying more stuff at a grocery store. They're buying more stuff locally. And again, like you said, I mean, it just it changes the dynamic of that entire industry. Every every area. Uh, I mean, what people don't realize that you learn about quickly is the amount of touch points of a product getting into your house at home. It starts with a manufacturing facility which imports products. Almost every manufacturer imports something from overseas, which is why that congestion at that port becomes such a challenge. Straws, the little cellophane tops on a juice box, the like the little plastic rings in the caps, like people companies learn to source it where it is most cost effective. And we don't have a lot of that manufacturing in the US. We just don't. And so that touch point is that manufacturer ships all that in. So it takes a ship and then a truck to get it to the manufacturing facility and then they unpack it. And then a worker, you know, runs the machines that assemble it and then it gets packaged up into a box and then loaded onto a truck and then shipped to a warehouse where the warehouse breaks it down and then it is put onto another truck, which is then shipped to a store and then it is pulled off by a worker who opens it and puts it on the goddamn shelf and then you go buy it and then you go through a cashier who then there's a bagger hopefully and then they put it into your car you drive home you put it in your fridge like it's insane yeah, it's it's it sounds like a perfect process during a pandemic yeah. so now disrupt every piece of that every piece right. of that disrupt it and that's why and then it's funny that you see like buyer behavior and you can see it any store anywhere that you go to any retail is somebody for like a highly consumable item is people go in and then all of a sudden shit's depleted and they're like, well, I need this. So I'm going to buy extra. So I don't have to worry about this. And then the next person does it. And then as it gets more depleted, more people react and you just have this big chain reaction and you can't, you know, and all, by the way, all of this uh, requires full staffing. Well, so what happens when your staffing is getting sick? And right. you have this pandemic and now people can't staff and people are out of work and it just is wild, man. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it is. It, I can't imagine what that industry has been like the last couple of years. Now, the company that you work for, are they a national chain? Are they a chain sort of in in centered around where you are? I mean, when you're looking at this data and having, you know, are you working on a few grocery stores? Are you working on a state level? Like what sort of footprint are you working with so our company covers multiple states and uh total locations is close to about 100 so we're a bigger chain but also if from a national perspective we're smaller you know there's there's certainly sure. grocery chains on the west coast that have among their multiple divisions 3,000 stores you know so you know walmart has i don't know a billion at this point but you know they're they're the retailer you know targets targets are a little bit different you know if you look at just straight grocers there's 
there's some big, big chains, but yeah, we're, we're regional. And so that's where we focus most of our attention on data. You know, we, you learn that the region across the country changes with shopping behaviors and what people consume and all depends sure. where they are. But do you look at competitor data at all? Oh yeah. Or are you so, yeah. Any segment of retail looks at all what all their competition does all the time. Everybody's studying off of each other, looking to where they can gain an advantage. And so, yeah, sure. that's, that's a good call out. There is a lot of time spent on studying competition as well. Interesting. So you've been doing this for a while and obviously it's become more exciting because of the pandemic. But prior to this, I mean, can you give me a career path? How did you get to this point? Yeah, I, um, I'm sure it's a straight line. It's a nice, easy. You know. Oh yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of, there's a lot of things that happened along the way that got to me where I am. It's always, it's always funny to look back and say, well, if I did this differently, where would I have ended up? When I was 15, I got my first job and that was at a hay farm stacking hails, bales of hay. And I didn't have a license or anything like that, but I made like six bucks under the table. And uh, the the farmer would give me a beer on occasion, which was pretty awesome. A diet, nice. yeah. You know, we work in hundred degree weather, and I would not drink water all day. But here's a beer, so that was that was always good for for rehydrating. Uh, when I turned when I turned sixteen, I became a waiter at a country club, and I did that for like a year, just waiting tables, working at a country club. That was kind of that was fine. Yeah, you, know, you know, it was mostly weekends, holidays, so not ideal. And then about a year later, I, I ended up in the grocery division and that's where I started. I was just a bagger, you know, for a few months. And then I ended up stocking shelves and, and doing all this stuff. And it was right around when I was 20 years old and I had been doing college for a couple of years and I find it challenging to concentrate on things I'm not interested in. And, and sure. it's really, college is a mixed bag of that. It's, it's a lot of trying to force yourself to learn something you have no interest in learning. And so... Right. Eventually, I just got too frustrated with the college and realized that that wasn't going to be the thing for me. And I ended up going full time uh, in the grocery in the grocery stores. I was good at it. It was like a nice increase of pay, and and I, I didn't really have much other direction at that time. And little did I know, I'd be in that business for twenty three years. So, yeah. dating myself a little bit there, but I, I ended up. But that's an awesome. That's an awesome story. I mean, like how often do we hear stories of people sort of bouncing jobs, bouncing careers, finding something that they don't like and moving on to something else? Um, and here you are where you sort of committed yourself to it and the payoff has been great, right? You've had a career. You're at a point now where you're, 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 you're not stocking shelves, right? You're actually making decisions and helping people be able to negotiate sales and pricing and stuff. I mean, that's an awesome story. Yeah. Part of it that helped is like the industry is not easy. If you talk to anybody who works in the industry, it's not easy. It's challenging. Like I said, it's, it's a, it's a 24 seven industry and it's very, it's very competitive and it's not the most profitable industry. You know, you're not selling Apple products at a tremendous markup. You're selling food and, right. and you, you're surrounded by competition, constantly undercutting each other. So, but it was a great company and for what it was, it was like, you know, the grass is not greener. So if this is working and trust me, it was challenging go growing up through the ranks. Um, you know, I was a manager at very young managing people much older than me. And I did a bunch of different things. And then I was, you know, like a assistant store manager and up until my late twenties. And I actually, you know, the, when the world went through a major recession 
everything got difficult everywhere and, and a lot of companies had to change how they were doing things for a while. I, uh, I actually ended up taking a break. I left my company for seven months and pursued a small business that a friend and I had been working on. And that was one of the more interesting times of my life where I literally left a company with no real plan, no other means to income. I love this. Uh, <laughs> and I just <laughs> took a huge chance. And, you know, I didn't have kids. And I did have a girlfriend at the time who I lived with, and she supported it. But it was, you know, at the time, what I thought was a million dollar idea. And I was incredibly frustrated just with, with the work landscape as a whole and wanted something more. I always had a bit of an entrepreneurial mindset. It was just, I also struggled with the uncomfortableness that comes with being an entrepreneur. You know, it's, right. it's much easier for somebody to say, do this, and then you do it better than what they asked for. This is sure. way easier. When it's like, I want to do this. And wow, everything I do is not good enough. That's, that's, that's tougher, you know? So also being financially stable enough to make that leap was not something I was very right. good at at that age. <laughs> Talk to me about this this business. What was this your idea? Was it your friend's idea? Were you guys like hanging out one night, drinking a few beers, and like came up with it together? Let's get to the. I want to get to the bottom of this. Quick little backstory on it. So I had been obsessed with like internet business and and how you know creating websites, blogging, all that stuff. I did a lot of that in my earlier 20s. So, you know, I wasn't unfamiliar with writing on the internet. I had a sports blog in my earlier 20s about the Red Sox and I would write about the Red Sox. And I actually remember when one like, and I, I man, I wish I could remember the name of it. One day that my traffic blew up because uh, some major website quoted something that I wrote. And that was like the first, oh crap, this is cool. And, but I would, you know, I was really, I could never settle on something, so I was always changing things. And and when I was right around before I left, I had met a guy who I was working with, and he and I were very similar. We were really into technology, and we were really into the internet and and how to generate income from that, and how can we create this life where you're doing what you love, and you're, you're creating and you're being rewarded for it. And we knew people were doing it and we knew we weren't dumb guys. It was just a matter of like, how are we going to do this? So we would just create all, all kinds of different ideas. We would, uh, we were throwing around and one day we had a, we had a phone call. We were kind of frustrated because we had, we had started a bunch of little small projects, but nothing was really something that we really liked. So I said, dude, I think we're overthinking this. Here's what we should do. We should start a t-shirt company. Everybody buys t-shirts. You can never have too many damn t-shirts as long as the price is right, the quality is good, and what's on it, because that was the most important. What was the brand and what was on it? And I said, I don't want to be just like a fashion one, because that's boring. I don't want to be like you know, Gucci or any of that shit. I said, let's, let's have a little fun with it. Let's use our twist. Let's kind of make fun of the industry at the same time. He's like, all right, I'm in. So what are we going to do? And I said, well, I got, I got an idea. Let's think about what... Let, let's just, let's make that creation process a little simpler. What are people really big into on the internet? What is like, what is the biggest thing? And we like, we threw around some ideas and I said, you know what? There's more of than anything else that I think cats, cat videos, cat, everything. People are obsessed with cats and there's like cat people everywhere is on the internet. And I was like, I got a cat. You got a cat. He's like, all right, that's what I get that. That makes sense. Now, mind you, this is like 10 years ago. 
I love this though. So I was like, all right, cool. So now we got a starting point. So we're going to do a t-shirt company. that seems pretty simple, pretty straightforward. It's going to be on cats. What are we going to do with it? And I was like, well, you know, and I, I don't remember this exact conversation, but I remember a lot of it because it was really fun. And it was like, there was this aha moment that happened. And I said, all right, let's make something unique with this cat. What, what could be different about this damn cat? And he's like, uh, you know, so we're thinking back and forth. And I said, well, what else is really big right now? And at the time, you know, it, from, uh, it was like when I first started growing a beard and, you know, I had, my hair was thinning and everything like that. And, you know, my hair started thinning when I was like 28, but it, it started to like morph into like beards were a big thing. And I remember like my favorite players on the Red Sox were growing beards and like people were growing beards. It's just like one of the, those, the new trends. I said, let's put a beard on the cat. He's like, what? So oh, <laughs> let me drop some concepts for you. Now, mind you, I'm not an artist. I, I, I have like this basic understanding of how to draw. So I went, I pulled out my laptop and I pulled up a basic paint program and I started using my finger on, on the mouse pad and I drew like a bunch of iterations of these cats. And then, so he came over and I was showing him, and I was like drawing all these different beards and we just came up with this super crude looking cat, but there was something about it, but the beard wasn't right. So we kept tweaking, refining, tweaking, refining, and all of a sudden we hit it and we were both just like pointed right at the screen and we're like, that's fucking it. That's it. That's the cat. I love it. So we got super excited. I was like, all right, now what do we do with it? And my girlfriend at the time was looking over our shoulders and she was giggling at it. And she goes, you should put a mouse with a mustache in that. So <laughs> I drew this cat with the beard and right across from it, staring at each other was this mouse with this big handlebar mustache. And I mind you, I just basically looked at an image on the internet and kind of like borrowed a little bit of this and that I created these really crude drawings. It was like basic two tone uh, gray and white with a black beard and black mustache, these really pensive stares. And they were just looking at each other and we named the scene. What? And we create, we went on a t-shirt site and we, we created a couple of, uh, we, we decided we didn't want to do anything normal. So there was no white t-shirts. We, we went with like this weird aqua color, got them printed on there, paid like 20 bucks a piece. They got shipped to me and we started wearing them around. People would notice uh, it just, it took off. Like then we started creating pins and stickers and die cut stickers and, and handing them out. And people love free shit, man. You get people free stuff. Yeah, man. They of love course. it. And it kind of within our area went a little viral. Like people thought it was awesome. They loved it. And so we're like, we went over, we named it, we called it bearded cat apparel <laughs> and we went down the, the rabbit hole, it, you know, like researching how to create shirts. And I started creating different versions of this cat. I would take this cat and I would change how it looked. Just add like, almost like you're making a Flovatar. I'd have hair and I'd add a jacket. And then I created like a Bob Ross cat. And I called it called it happy, and we created a, a, a BDSM cat with a with a with a <laughs> with a shark on a wheel, a sex wheel, and we called it recess. <laughs> like we just <laughs> kept adding layers to the shit, and people started to. So we would get prototypes, and we started to do like little fun marketing shoots. He actually, we created a website. We had um, an Instagram. And my friend drove all the way to New York to get a mannequin for modeling because we wanted to kind of make fun of modeling. So we wanted to just use this stupid mannequin, put these shirts on it, and then pose <laughs> with it in pictures. 
and he's like he met some biker guy in a and, and he who sold it to him off of his bike and he put the mannequin in his passenger seat and buckled it in wait a minute this biker guy had a mannequin on his bike <laughs> yes so he bought this mannequin from this strange guy for like 50 bucks. He drove all the way to New York in his Jeep. Probably spent 100 bucks of gas to do it because he had a huge lift kit on it. And it was like a 1990 Jeep. He put the mannequin in his seatbelt, buckled it in and drove all the way home and like posted pictures to Instagram and shit of it. It was hilarious. Oh, my Lord. So it was born. And we were like, we looked at each other. We we're like, dude, this is a million dollar idea. I did this whole FAQ page that just basically made fun of the project and made fun of it, but in a way that like people got it and it was super fun. And the challenge and the lesson that I learned is that the idea ended up being mostly mine. And so it was more of like, we overthought how to do things and it, it got too excited about we, we were going to go on um, one of those crowdsourcing websites and raise funding. And we've like, we overkilled everything. We wanted to do the perfect video and everything just had to be perfect. And we didn't actually let the product speak for itself. But I like people were pre-ordering. They wanted to buy these goddamn shirts. Then That's wild. Yeah. Then we had our biggest stumbling block is we bought, we spent like three grand on printing shirts. We printed a lot of them. However many it was, you know, ended up being like $12 a shirt that we were going to sell for 20 And we didn't know anything about creating the right files because I drew everything. So I had to learn Photoshop a little bit and layers and how all that. So I did like YouTube videos. And when I sent it to them, it got printed wrong because it I formatted it wrong. And we were out like three grand. And so that honestly was like the biggest, wow, this is harder than we thought. And we just kind of crushed ourselves with blowing three grand on this. And one thing led to another. And, and unfortunately the project kind of died out after a couple months and I was left wondering, all right, what am I going to do? And uh, so I found my way back into the grocery industry. Wow. that So that is a fascinating story. So though you said you had left the, the grocery industry for like a period of maybe seven months. Yep. yep. And out of that seven months, how much time, like what was the shirt roller coaster? Was that the full seven months, five, six pretty close. months? Like yeah, 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 pretty close. It was there was a lot of work and it was fun and, but when it hit a wall, it hit a wall, and it was really it was really difficult to rebound. Wow. So it sounds like things were moving in a, in a pretty positive direction. People were interested at least locally, and things were flying um, to the point that you hit, you had to you had to get a mannequin from a biker. Um, but then you had the printing error and obviously not having a ton of funds to be able to support that. Had that printing error not happened, do you think things may have gone in a different direction? Or was you mentioned that like the idea was mostly yours and sort of there was this – it seemed almost like there was the beginning of an end anyway. Do you think that exacerbated the, the end or do you think that it could have actually taken off had you not had that printing error? Yeah, I think I think it was two things. If I, the printing error didn't happen, it could have taken off. Um, I think the biggest challenge, and I, I would say this to anybody, is you know if you have a partnership, you you want it to be people who, if you're partnering with somebody, you want them to be as equally excited about it as you are. And truthfully, I was the one up till two in the morning drawing things and and creating ideas, and I work much better in collaboration. 
I very much value having people to, to bounce ideas off. I get very excited and I get very into something and I'll, I'll just completely immerse myself in it. And he w- he thought it was fun. And I, I think that I, like, he's a great guy. We're still friends and he was a sharp guy, but I don't think he had the long-term vision that I did. And ultimately it was kind of left with this. I can do this, but it's not the same if it's just me. Mm-hmm. And it felt really difficult. And also, by the way, I wasn't great with, money at the time and i was you know almost seven months un- unemployed so you know i'm, I'm living with somebody <laughs> i'm i'm 30 like 30 years old or something like this point so it's you know it's one of those reality checks that my heart stopped being in it quickly yeah and it was a real big reality check for me when i went back into the industry that Listen, if you're going to pursue something, and that was just a silly little t-shirt idea. If you're going to pursue a business, you got to go all in and it's going to be a huge risk and it may not work out. And, you know, mine was relatively not, it wasn't very damaging. Some people lose their house and they will lose everything investing in it. And so I was fortunate in that aspect, but it was definitely a setback and and discouraging. This is like, I love creating. I love that aspect of coming up with things that people haven't thought of and people enjoying it what you've created. And that was there for me in that project. It was like, this is my brain and I am just putting it on these shirts, but it's really hard. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Wow. That's wild. So interesting. So are there any bearded cat shirts left? Uh, there could be in some other countries cause we donated almost all of them. <laughs> I have one looking, looking for it. I have one somewhere packed up. It's still in its original package. Okay. It is the original. I'll take a picture of it when I when I find it and I'll share it with you. But I do have the original one. I had done everything. That's I had awesome. created business cards with a little cat in a business suit and put it on there. And uh, we, we just did all kinds of things. They were super fun. Actually, when I got into the NFT space back in February, my wife really encouraged me to resurrect it. And I actually sat for a couple weeks and drew up new concepts and actually had them on i i put them on uh open because you can just spend whatever it is a small fee and then you can start creating them sure and i had this idea that i was going to bring back the bearded cat on open and do an nft project before i even really understood what it was right then i learned how kind of all that worked and i was like at that point i realized this is way too hard and i my heart's still not, it's not into it anymore. That time has passed. So I do have all these concepts drawn up in my, in my desktop, but yeah, no, no beard to cat NFT. Well, and you know, the thing about NFTs, right. Is like, yeah, you could, you could try and sell the NFT and, and maybe it would sell. I don't know that it sounds like a pretty cool looking um, thing. Maybe you use it as a PFP or whatever, but like what people are interested in now in the NFT space is what comes after that? Yeah. Right? Like, so yeah, they, they purchase it and now they're in the community, but then what do they get with that community and what kind of airdrops and what kind of gamification and what, you know, whatever it is. Um, and that I have to believe is, is a difficult task to fulfill. I would imagine. Yeah. That's not something I'm interested in. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> it takes a tremendous amount of work to build a good community organically and all the work that goes into, you know, we just talked about, you know, Flovatar is a little bit more advanced than some other projects, but they've been working on it as a team since Q1. You know, so I don't have developers. I don't have anything. And, and I truthfully, I'm just not interested in seeking that out and doing something like that. Sure. <laughs> sure. 
Sure. That's super interesting, though. What a great story. Yeah, I have a story. You know, there's always that. So it's it's fun. It's fun to talk about reminisce. Uh, I don't ever worry about what if, you know, if it's meant if it happens, it happens. And I look at it and I say, you know, truthfully, I, I just couldn't pursue it. You know, but I've always wanted to create and that's why I'm doing podcasting and and I have ideas for more creating down the road as as I have the opportunity to. And, and as long as it stays fun, I'll, I'll keep doing it. And if the, you know, the main goal is it's we're focusing on onboarding people and helping people who are less experienced in the space. And, and that's the goal. I have a lot of people that reach out to me in DMs. I had a guy reach out to me yesterday, ask me about Flovatar, how it works. And I sent him like five paragraphs. <laughs> Because it excites me. Like, I get excited. I, I would much rather teach somebody about something I'm passionate about than, like, how to use a MetaMask. I would probably refer somebody because that just doesn't interest me much right now. But if you want to right. talk about flow projects or, like, legitimately how to get on there, I'm not going to tell you how to make money. You know, you, you kind of have to figure that out on your own. You know, me and Colby will talk about stuff and ideas that we have. We'll talk about what worked for us, what didn't. But honestly, the goal is to teach people how to enjoy this space and have some fun. That's the idea anyway. Yeah, that, that's that's awesome. And the space needs that and more of it, for sure. I know that you and your wife like to travel. I know you just got back from a short little getaway in Arizona, right? Um, how often do you get to travel? Now, pandemic excluded, because I don't know how, how much you traveled over the course of the last year or so, but like general year, general time frame, are you guys looking to get away? for a couple of big trips that might last a week or so? Are you looking to get away just for a bunch of weekends and just sort of pack your fun in that way? What's your, talk to me about a normal uh, year and what your travel is like. My wife loves to travel. If it was up to her, we would travel every month. We would travel all over the place. You know, I never went on an international trip until I met her, Uh, but it was certainly something that when we started dating, I was very open to. As I said, you know, I haven't traveled much in my life And, you know, for work, I've gone on planes a lot all over the country, but not like vacationing. So we aim to do two long trips a year. Um, And the goal pre-COVID was one domestic, one international. You know, so pre-COVID, we had been to Portugal, we had been to Iceland, uh, but we had also like Key West is a a favorite of ours. We'll do that. We did that like four years in a row. So we love Key West. Okay. We actually went to Key West after dating for only six months. So that was kind of a, that was a, a little bit of a risk, but it ended up working out great. <laughs> we had a lot of fun. <laughs> Key West is an awesome place to go, especially, you know, she thinks she likes, we like exploring. We like hiking. We like seeing nature. So Key West is as much fun as it is, you know, like having fun on Duval Street and stuff as it is going snorkeling in some of the best reefs in the world. So we'll do like sure. three snorkeling trips, but the goal is, you know, we're throwing around Ireland in May. You know, we've had Ireland on our list since pre-COVID, but COVID kind of, you know, we don't want to risk traveling internationally and then all of a sudden we can't come back. You're right. <laughs> so, yeah, of course. Uh, we, but we went to Arizona. We've been to Utah, hiked all those. You know, been to San Francisco, Chicago. Uh, you know, so we have a list of other places. Love to do a couple places in Canada, Switzerland, other European countries. It's fun to go and see stuff in person. And, mm-hmm. you know, there's places we won't ever go because maybe it's dangerous or less tourist friendly. We will definitely go to places that are more tourist friendly. If you've never been to Europe or overseas, Portugal is an amazing place. I know Tandy lives there. 
and he spoke yeah. to Portugal's beautiful. People are friendly. It's very, very safe. It's like actually one of the safest countries in the world to visit. And it's it's just so it's so cool. And that was my first out of country trip. And it was it was mind blowing. You know, the first time we went there, I, I got in a car. I ended up having to drive because she couldn't drive a stick. And I pulled out of the parking garage and I pulled to this four lane rotary. And I was like, what the fuck is this? Holy shit. <laughs> I'm like looking and there's light. I'd never seen a foot like there's there's roundabout. We call it rotaries, but there's roundabouts is what they call them. And they're right. everywhere. And that is a really efficient way for traffic. But man, this four. So I like I was like, all right, hold on to your seat. I'm going to break probably a couple laws here. Hopefully there's no cops around. And I just ripped right into it. And then like we went around and then we saw where our exit was. And I had to cut across two people in this little car to get on the exit and then we were on our way. But, uh, yeah, long and the short of it is we, we try to, we, the idea is to do one long trip locally and then one long trip outside of the country. So maybe Ireland happens and then we'll do a bunch of long weekends throughout the year. And, you know, we might do, uh, we're going to Colorado coming up. We have some friends that live out there. We're going to do a long weekend. So we, we like to travel. Yeah, that's awesome. Portugal was your first out-of-country experience. Do you have, I know you, you talked about Ireland, do you have a place that you would just absolutely love to go for whatever reason? Maybe it's something you've read about, maybe it's something you've seen in movies or whatever, maybe it's just this fantasy you have about a place, but is, is there a place that you just are anxiously awaiting that part of the checklist? My wife more than me. She has a long list. Truthfully, like I still get traveling internationally, like going to Ireland sounds super fun. And I know that the, the culture there is awesome, but driving on the other side of the road scares the shit out of me. I've never done it. <laughs> uh, I, do, I personally don't have a place that we haven't been to. There is one, and I'm going to actually have to search up the, it's one of the, it's in Peru. It's one of the seven wonders of the world. Machu Picchu. That's it. Machu Picchu. So that's yeah. my place. That's my jam. That's what I know. It's it's more of a tourist destination, so it shouldn't be as you know uh, stressful to go to. But that is the one place on my list that I definitely have to make it to because it looks really cool. That's awesome. So I did my um, some of my undergrad work was in pre-Hispanic Peruvian cultures, and so I studied. Um, the Inca and a, a bunch of other uh, Moche and a bunch of different cultures that lived in Peru. And I spent like two, I don't remember now, like two-ish, maybe three months in Peru. Um, we spent like a couple weeks in the jungle. We spent, we did, we did Machu Picchu, did the hike. So I'm, I'm all for it. I'm here to support you. If you need me to write a letter to your wife, I am here in support of your Machu Picchu desires. Dude, I, I would take it. I don't think she's definitely interested, but I would be more interested in like what were your best experiences and everything like that. But I think once COVID, whatever it is, becomes less of a threat for, for traveling, then that would be something that I would definitely push for. Yeah. The, I, I don't, I don't, this is, I don't want to get into sort of my experience as much, but I will tell you this, when you do the hike to Machu Picchu and they time it perfectly. So they wake you up, you know, before the sun comes up. So when you arrive to, um, Machu Picchu, the, the destination, it's just as the sun is coming up and it is this beautiful, it is incredible. It is absolutely incredible. You will never forget it. You got to do it. Oh, you have to do I'm it. I'm definitely, I'm sold now, man. You know, we just went to Arizona and 
getting up early and seeing the sunrise over the Grand Canyon and, and Antelope Canyon and, and Sedona is, is awesome. And it's really, it's really worth the trip. So, you know, we did it when we went to Utah and hiked all of the national parks in January when nobody was there because it's cold as hell, but we were there <laughs> and it's nice because there's nobody there. So you could get these beautiful sunrise pictures. I love seeing that stuff. So that would, that would be definitely something to do. Yeah, very cool, very cool. Um, so obviously, you're you're looking forward to traveling, and you plan that out, and you have your times. You know what you do that. But if you had a day off from work, what is what kind of what's your favorite activity to do? You just like to hang out and sort of relax and not do much. Are you looking for something to do? Do you want to, you know, get out on the town? When you get a day off, what's your go to? It, well, there's there's two things that can happen. If if I'm off by myself, I'll probably spend time on my computer brainstorming ideas for the podcast, looking at NFTs, and you know, maybe two years or a year ago, year and a half ago, that would be a lot different. Uh, I try to start my weekends off with a workout. So for the past seven years, CrossFit has been a huge part of my life and my wife's. That's actually how we met. A little bit less. I don't. I used to do it six days a week, which is really intense. And I would compete in competitions and and do some other fun stuff. But as I've gotten a little older and gotten more interested in NFTs, I you know I still try to maintain that because fitness and and health and exercise is really important and it's also very good for decompressing. So CrossFit, mm-hmm. that would be you know say if I'm I'm off on a on a weekend. I'm going to start by doing a workout in the morning. That pretty much sets my day up pretty well. Then I come home, slow pace, everything. I like to slow things down. Work can be fast pace. I have a nice coffee at a local coffee shop. Maybe, you know, if it's me and my wife, we'll, we'll go get a brunch somewhere and, you know, see where the day takes us. We like to have some fun. So, you know, actually yesterday we went to the local brewery and they have an arcade. So we had a few beers and we played video games all day. That's super, That's awesome. it's super fun. Yeah. Like yeah. get a little, get a little buzz, have a little fun and it just unwind and you don't think about anything else. You're just playing some video games and, and being a kid again. So, you know, other times we will like, we'll go for a hike. We like hiking a lot, just doing things that allows your mind to focus on something and, and decompress from the outside world is, is huge. Now you are in Massachusetts. Have you have you did you grow up in Massachusetts? I mean, are you sort of born and bred? Born and raised, brother. I've never lived yeah. outside of the state. I've lived in different towns. Uh, I grew up about thirty minutes from where I live now. But yeah, born and bred Massachusetts my whole life. Super Homer sports fan. All those things. Yeah. So you you mentioned the Red Sox and and writing blogs or, or you know things about the Red Sox. Was baseball sort of your first? love in terms of sports did you follow um the patriots were you a patriots fan before they were good <laughs> or you know <laughs> I, like talk to me about your talk to me about growing up with boston sports because boston is a great sports community they're frenetic for their sports um and you've got you know you've got history with the celtics and the bruins and the red sox and so there's a lot going on there grew up in a baseball family my mother was a diehard red sox fan since she was a kid and so she would bring me to Fenway and the family to Fenway uh, as early as like when I was seven years old, I remember going and, you know, different experience then, but Red Sox were not very good for a long time. So baseball was my first love. We were, uh, my brother played baseball. I had a cousin who played baseball, who ended up getting into the minor leagues. He was 
very, very talented, all grew up in the same town. So he's probably one of the best players our town had ever seen. Didn't make it past double A, but ultimately just a huge baseball fan. So I didn't discover football until football was always a little bit more complicated for me to understand. I didn't play it because as a kid, I was undersized. You know, I got to high school. I was like five foot five, 140 pounds. Like I wasn't playing football. It just wasn't happening. (laughs) So uh, I played basketball and baseball. Uh, You know, we had a hoop outside. Basketball was a tough transition for me into sports because we had a gravel driveway. So I learned to dribble on a gravel driveway and I would go outside and I would play for hours on my own. And when I joined the league and I started trying to dribble on a hard court, it was freaking super hard. <laughs> Eventually I got it down and I was the team's point guard. And, uh, you know, so, but we were terrible. My first year playing, I think we went, oh, and 18 or what, oh, and 17 or so. We were awful. We were so bad. And, uh, so I love playing basketball. I played baseball all up until high school. And honestly, it stopped because I was too small. I was just way too small to play anything. And so Did, was it a big high school? Was there a, yeah. a bunch of kids in it? Yeah, it was a fairly good size high school with a very good sports program. So sports okay. was strong for us and there was a good history of sports. So you had to be a decent player to get on. And I just, I didn't develop until I was a sophomore. And that's when I really sprouted up and grew like seven inches or six inches and gained weight and all that jazz. But uh, by then I had discovered other things. I discovered sure. football page. I became a Patriots fan when they drafted Bledsoe. So we didn't grow up a, a huge Patriots family, but I really got into it when, when Bledsoe got drafted and then really got into it when they, you know, made their Super Bowl run against the Packers and lost to Favre. And, you know, that's when I, my interest grew in football and I started to learn about it. Basketball as a kid, I was a Jordan fan. Michael Jordan got me into basketball, not the Celtics. So like I said, we were a baseball family. Uh, we would watch Celtics occasionally, but you know, I missed that whole era cause I was just so focused on Jordan. He was just magical. And I fell in love with the bulls and I followed the bulls through Jordan's most of Jordan's run, you know, once I was older. And then when he retired the second time I became a Celtics fan. Okay. So that is the time where I was like, all right, well, I'm not interested in the bulls anymore cause Jordan's gone. So I'm going to go, I'm going to go bandwagon and jump on the Celtics who weren't very good at the time. <laughs> It's like (laughs) we're talking, you know, we got into the Pierce Antoine Walker era and Antoine Walker was, well, some Celtics fans loved him. I couldn't stand him, but (laughs) yeah. And and over time after the Red Sox won a couple world series, you know, the first world series of one was one of the greatest sports memories that I all ever have. And just one of the greatest seasons and comeback stories and everything uh, was tied up in that season. After a couple championships, I really started to gravitate to basketball and I really, really, and football. And those are the two sports that I fell in love with the most. And, you know, if you asked me one sport that I could watch for the rest of my life, I would pick basketball because I think it is just the most exciting sport that, you know, football on a Sunday is amazing. Football is awesome. It's, it's tough. They've done a lot of things in that league to sustain it, you know, as far as keeping players safe and everything, but man, it is still such a dangerous sport. And players are so short-lived, it's really hard to latch on to anybody but a quarterback in football. Right. They just, they're, you know, Le'Veon Bell was the best running back in the league two years later. He's, you can't even find a team type thing. It just changes right. so quickly. Basketball has a lot more longevity. And so, you know, basketball is the sport that I probably love the most now. 
growing up, you played sports a bit. You were in your driveway dribbling on, a, on gravel, thinking you were Michael Jordan. <laughs> and then uh, you have carried on now later in life with CrossFit and sort of working out in that manner. What about in between? I mean, did you do like pickup games at the Y or did you work out in a different fashion? Did you just hike and, and do that sort of thing? No, I destroyed my health. In time? Yeah, I was going to say, was there a gap in time where you didn't do anything? <laughs> oh, there was a large gap. Uh, so one of the things that I discovered in high school, since I didn't play sports, was smoking cigarettes and drinking. <laughs> so uh, I I enjoyed partying, and I enjoyed it up through high school and into my 20s. And, you know, I actually, so to, to fulfill my competitive spirit, I, I joined a pool league, uh, billiards, when I was okay. in my early 20s. And... I ended up really enjoying it. And it was a beer league. So you played at a bar and the bar host and you're on a team and there's handicaps. And uh, I ended up learning from these guys who one guy in particular who lived near me and he had a garage and he had a pool table and we would go play pool and we would drink Mabawana, which is Puerto Rican moonshine. And we would drink it. I was going to ask, what is that? Yeah. Yeah. So he was from Puerto Rico and his sons were from Puerto Rico and they were amazing pool players. Some of the best pool players I've ever played with. And they taught me how to play. And that's how I learned. I learned I would go over to the garage. They would put on Spanish music. We would drink Mabawana. And I would learn how to play pool. And that I wow. I grinded that out. I became obsessed with it. I played it every day. And I had poor health-ish because I was smoking cigarettes. And right. I mean, I didn't drink every day. But when I the weekends came around, I, I partied. So we would play pool for hours. And it became my obsession. And then I got videos and I bought sticks, like uh, like nice sticks, and I would just practice over and over and over again. We eventually got good enough where we won a regional championship. We went to Las Vegas for the finals and uh, played a or national competition, and we played at that level. And uh, I played my very first game absolutely hammered. I did not time it well, and I was so excited to be in Vegas for the first time, and I was 27 <laughs> years old that I uh, I got super drunk and I could barely stand when I played this person. And I went down significantly and the guys were like, dude, are you all right? And I was like, I'm, dude, I'm too drunk. And so one of them said, when you shoot, close an eye. I'll never forget this. He said, shoot, close an eye. I was like, all right. So I closed one eye and I started playing. And somehow I found my groove and I ended up winning that match. And I ended up no going way. undefeated. I won eight matches straight in Vegas. We didn't win it. Uh, we ended up getting bounced by a team in Louis- from Louisiana that were a bunch of sandbaggers. But, uh, you know, they intentionally kept their handicaps low and then unleashed on us. They destroyed us. Right. But <laughs> that filled up a gap but, of time. But it sounds like you practiced drunk. So oh, yeah. You should have been you should have played, been able to play drunk. So Come on. it just took, it took a reality <laughs> check for me. But, yeah, so we had a – it was funny. The guy who taught me, he was an older guy. He was in his 60s. And he had trouble seeing but he wouldn't wear glasses. He hated glasses. He hated contacts. So when what was amazing, and I swear to God, the more he drank, the better he got. So we used to tell him, like, you know, he start. We we wouldn't let him play until later. He's probably the best player on our team. He's just a sneaky guy. And we would say, hey, you got to put your glasses on. And putting your glasses on means you need to have a couple more beers. You know, you hold the two beer bottles up to your glasses. And that was our that was our. That we we partied and had fun first, then played pool. So Stone Cold Sober us playing wasn't very good. There is this sweet oh, I love it. There is this sweet spot where you have a really good buzz and you're borderline, you know, that we would just play at. And I feel the same way about golf. Oh yeah? 
Like yeah, because like you know, if I if you hit the course and you're you're tight, you're you know you're you're sort of bound up and your swing isn't right, you, you lube your body up with a couple of drinks and like you're just loose and your swing moves. It just I feel like it works and like I don't know the same thing with with pool right? Like your grip is too tight, your hands are sweaty, you you relax a little bit after a couple of beverages and now things just kind of move. The whole game of pool is practicing and and absorbing and muscle memory and then at the pool table being confident and not overthinking i watched some of the best shooters i've ever played against go to shit because i would play against them and i would just play defense over and over again and take them out of their groove they wouldn't be able to establish a a good shot and run and frustrate the hell out of them it is so much is just like patience and understanding and and uh confidence that it's half the game and yeah, so I played that for like seven or eight years, and eventually, wow. uh, I got you know I kind of got bored with it, and it was on to the new next chapter, and I got into martial arts for about three and a half years. I did uh, uh, Wing Chun, and that was super fun because Wing Chun was like is like this magical martial art that teaches you how to use your body in different ways, and I loved that. And then when I got to you know like age of thirty two, as I said, wow. I'm, I'm starting to feel like I'm on borrowed time. I've been smoking since I was a young teenager and I'm not healthy and I can't go upstairs without dying. So I quit smoking finally and I started running and I couldn't run more than a, a tenth of a mile at a time without dying. And eventually parlayed that into running one mile, two miles, etc. The whole goal was I actually wanted to be able to play sports and have fun again. You yeah. know, play basketball and do stuff and I couldn't do any of it. And uh, that was the motivator. And then I found CrossFit and it kind of what I've been doing ever since. It's awesome. It's interesting. It sounds like you are the type of person that when you get involved in something, you are a hundred percent into it. Like, uh, there's, there's no middle ground, which can be really great or it can also be a challenge depending on what that is. Right. Like, yeah, that's spot on. Yeah. I want, I want, (laughs) I want to know everything about it. I want to be very good at it. And so there is a cost to that. The results are great. Sometimes, but there's also a cost to it. So yeah, I got to a level where I was competing and you know, I've done different things in CrossFit where I wanted to get really strong and, and, you know, so I wanted to deadlift 500 pounds. And so like, that was my goal. And then when you get to that, then it's like, all right, what's my next thing. And that's like, all right, I want to improve this time or I want to compete at this level. And, you know, I want to beat people who are 10 years younger than me. And, you know, I was friends with people who were some of the best athletes in the gym. And so that was always driving. It's like, I wanted to be as good as them. I wanted to beat them in workouts. So there's always that competitiveness in everything I do, you know, whether it's work or whether it's, you know, hobbies or sports or NFTs, there's always in, in a, in I think not a completely unhealthy way. Like I don't want to beat somebody at all costs. I just want to to do the work that makes me better than that. I can do something better. And so when I take, when, uh, you know, I will take any any opportunity I can for self motivation. Put a chip on my shoulder or something like that. You know, if somebody wants to count me out on something, I'm going to triple down and I'm going to even go forward. You know, more. And that would apply to anything I'm doing in this space right now or or, or anything. So, yeah, I love it. Um, so again, I want to be respectful of your time, and, and we've been chatting here for a bit, a little over an hour, and and we've chatted beforehand for probably close to a half an hour as well. So um, a, a few more sort of more quick hitting questions. And then I, I want you to think, and you can think about this, uh, but I'm going to ask you if you have sort of a, 
a philosophy or a mantra or some guiding principle that, that you have. And so when we get to that point, um, I'm, I'm going to want to hear that. But you talked about CrossFit. You talked about competitions. Were you doing or did you do competitions locally and some of those things that would travel like, I don't know, there's the Ragnar. There's a few different things that will like travel around the country. Or were you actually going to places to do the competitions? All the competitions I did were local and friendly. Uh, okay. Partner workouts and stuff, you know, with a partner. And um, yeah, I, I'm not good enough to compete <laughs> far yeah. farther beyond that. But it's good enough for me. It's fun. So with the pandemic, like did, I assume you go or had have been going to a gym. Uh, to do it and work out with people but during the pandemic did the gym close did you have to do stuff on your own did you have to come up with some way to do workouts either at home or like in your yard like what were you doing during the pandemic to keep your workouts going well the short answer is i built a gym in my garage of course you did because you're 100 percent. you're the 100 percent guy so there's no doubt you did that <laughs> the slightly longer story is when the pandemic hit, yeah, all the gyms closed and we were forced. So I, I'm lucky where I have an oversized garage. The guy who owned the house before me built it extremely tall and two cars deep so he could pull a boat through. So I actually have a door that opens into my backyard and my front yard. And he pulled a boat through and parked it in the backyard. So yeah, we, we started and now everything went on a shortage. You couldn't get weights. You couldn't get dumbbells. You couldn't get anything. And we started to piece it together. And then honestly, like a few thousand dollars later, we had a home gym with a full uh, Rogue Fitness is like probably the biggest brand in CrossFit, uh, uh, yep. a steel rack that we bolted into the, the, the ground. We bought all these super thick one inch uh, stall mats, laid it all out, installed cabinets, bought weights, barbells, everything. I could do everything. And then we staked out in my backyard. I have a decent sized plot, a little over three quarters of an acre. So we staked out a 400 meter run and a 200 meter run so we could do workouts and we opened the back garage, we would pump music. And that's what I did for, you know, almost a year was just work out in my garage. Do you, do you do, do you work out there now or are you back to the gym? Do you prefer the gym setting? Do you, what's your, what's your mental makeup as it relates to working out at home versus a gym? The gym is better. Uh, the beauty of CrossFit is it's groups. So you're working out with groups and there's a lot of different ways for somebody who's competitive to compete, whether it's with yourself or others at your level in the gym, because there's all different levels of people at the gym. And so, it, you know, in the camaraderie and the community, community is just what makes everything so amazing that I'm involved in. It's you, I don't do too many things too independently. I like working with people and hanging out with people. And so that's another piece that I miss. The, the, the garage gym is there for when we want it and when we need it, we don't feel like going. Also have friends over when it's warmer out and we can do workouts. It's it's, it's mostly dormant right now until you know it gets warmer out again. Now you you put, put your, your backyard garage door up and blasted music. What, what kind of music? Now, what kind of music were you blasting? What do you work out to? And is that the same that you would listen to if you were just kind of hanging around the house? Uh, I will listen to a much more diverse assortment of, of music. I listen to everything. You know, I think a lot of people say that, but I, I listen to everything, including country. A lot of people say I listen to everything but country, but I, I actually right, like right? country. I like good music. I uh, Kobe Jinx is one of my favorite artists. But when I work out, it is two genres, hip hop and mostly from like the 90s, which was still, in my opinion, the best era of hip hop and metal. 
So I was actually a big metalhead growing up too. I like music with energy and and so I will combine the two between heavy metal and, and hip hop and I'll create pro, you know, sometimes I'm in the mood for just one. Other times I have a playlist where I, I mix the two and but yeah, loud and fun. But my wife and I will go to concerts. We'll go to country concerts because those are super fun if you haven't been to one. And uh, yeah. I didn't listen to country before her. I was like, that's stupid. Music sucks. <laughs> but uh, it's very good. I like it. It's it's easy to listen to. Uh, Tool is one of my favorite bands of all time. Anything Maynard James yeah, Keenan touches is gold. I've seen Tool live. I've seen Pussy for live. And so Tool is one of those, like, I'm just going to unwind and, and put something in the background. Tool and Cody Jenks are probably my two go-tos for that. So again, I want to be really respectful of your time and I could probably just keep having this conversation all day long because it, it's fascinating. I love to get to know people and especially, you know, in, in our case, I got to know you a little bit through the Wolfpack and through the DMs and stuff. So this is just like, this is, this is an awesome experience for me. So, um, but can you leave the audience with something? Can you, you know, in terms of what, what you, what centers you, what helps you in terms of your strategy, whether it's, uh, life strategy, whether it's in the NFT space, but is there a mantra, a philosophy? Is there something that you use as a guiding principle uh, that you could share with the audience? We all in times in life have to do things that we don't enjoy. That's kind of part of life. But if you're not enjoying something and you have the, uh, the means to change it, do it. Don't do something you don't like doing and that philosophy is carried over into like nfts and that i've learned and now is you know people have always said buy what you love it's really it's a lot harder to do that than people think but you know i i've done a lot of different things you know done kung fu and i've done uh you know crossfit and hiking and changed a lot of things in my life for the you know for the better and so doing what you enjoy sounds so simple but it is really really true like you know, there's so many different ways to be healthy and eat better and, and work out better. If it sucks, the method that you've chosen, don't stick with it. There's so many other things. Like if you're in right, NFT space right. and you're frustrated all the time, well, then whatever you're into or whatever you're doing is not working or it's for the wrong reasons. Maybe it's you're just trying to get rich and like you, you're thinking that like this is going to be the next hit or, or whatever. It's It just doesn't work that way. Um and so I try to have, I try to do that and I try to have humility as much as possible. You know, I'm, I'm a, a strong minded, so I have a lot of self-confidence. I'm going to say things that are incorrect. I try to correct myself and own up to anything that I may say that is wrong. I just try to have humility and try to be humble. And it's, it's, it's hard sometimes, you know, we're in a space that is like, largely ego driven. Like if you're on Twitter and you're mm -hmm. blasting out tweets all the time and you're, it's a lot of like, Hey, look at me, I have something important right. to say, you know? And so I try to stay in my lane and, and not try to be somebody I'm not. I always try, like I, I my hope is that you interact with me in DMS and then you meet me in real life. That's who I am. So just again, to summarize, staying true to yourself, don't do shit. You don't like uh, you know, for extended periods of time and have humility in life. It's, it's one of the most admirable traits, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, that, that, that's awesome advice. Don't try to be somebody you're not. It just causes yeah. problems. <laughs> <laughs> There's no doubt. <laughs> Absolutely. No doubt about it. Well, listen, I really appreciate you taking the time to be here with us. 
Uh, I want to make sure that we get this so that if, if you know, the audience doesn't know, um, Dave P's Twitter handle is at Dave underscore P underscore. Um, and if you haven't checked out the Priority Q, his podcast, uh, and that's uh, at Priority Q pod, it's on uh, Apple and Spotify, right, Dave? Yep. Yep. Yeah. Uh, you got to check it out. Dave is is taking on a co-host, uh, Top Shot Boy, uh, and there's going to be a whole bunch of cool stuff that they do. I don't want to give any, I don't want to leak any alpha, uh, but there's going to be some really cool things. So you'll all have to stay tuned to that. But he's already had on the podcast some really interesting people in the Top Shot community. Um, he's had a, a few different podcasts where he's you just kind of talk for a little bit about some ballers and some different things. So if you haven't checked that out, you've got to get to it. You've got to check it out and get caught up before the new stuff comes out because it's like season two and uh, we all get anxious for the new season's release, right? So <laughs> Absolutely. I love it. I love it. Well, listen, I really appreciate it. I hope that you enjoy the rest of your afternoon and uh, I hope that your Monday is uh, is an atypical Monday, and it, it flows beautifully into a wonderful week. Mark, thanks so much for having me on, man. This was a lot of fun. I think you got a great thing going here. You're a good host, and uh, like you said, we could have talked for another hour easy. So uh, I enjoy I enjoy interacting with you every day in the Wolf Chat. I feel I feel privileged to know all these guys and and to be able to hang out and and call you guys friends. So absolutely good and times. I, and we man. will we will. At some point, we will get together and we'll share beer some way and, and have some laughs. So Absolutely. Uh, until, I look forward to that. Absolutely, yeah. So until then, man, stay well, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Sounds good, man. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Inside the Handle with Dave P. We had a great time getting to know him. Don't forget to follow us at Inside the Handle on Twitter, and stay tuned for our next episode. 